Thanks, Gene. It has been uh, so good to be with you uh, and just fellowship and uh, now open up the word again for you. Uh, I have uh, just enjoyed it. So thank you and uh, appreciate all the great food, too. It's been that's been an extra blessing. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter three. We're going to finish up with verse 10 and uh and then finish chapter four. We've got just a great section uh, this evening and uh, lots of different application. And so may the Lord uh, use his word to speak to your heart this evening. Uh, let's just start right into it because we've got a lot to get through. Uh, I want to look at Yahweh's steadfast compassion in chapter three, verse 10. It says this. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. I just want to pause right there. The people of Nineveh had a change of mind, a change of thinking, change of lifestyle. Uh, and it's a great opportunity to just talk about what repentance is and what it isn't. Uh, repentance means you do a 180, right? You stop doing this thing. You start doing uh, this thing. You stop that behavior, uh, you start doing this behavior, you stop uh, thinking in those patterns, you start thinking in these patterns. And the people of Nineveh were remarkable in that they were quick to change. Uh, even Jesus points this out, in fact. The Ninevites believed the message of the Lord's prophet, but the scribes and Pharisees demanded that Jesus prove his deity with a sign. So this is what happens when Jesus... Uh, uh, incites or, or brings up Jonah, Jesus uh, goes on to say, Ninevites will stand up in the day of judgment to condemn the scribes and the Pharisees for their unbelief. So the Ninevites change their minds and their lives uh, essentially after one sermon, uh, and Jesus commends them for it. Uh, all of this, I might say, is different than what, what you could call a false repentance, uh, the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces uh, death. You could say uh, false repentance feels bad because you, know, you were caught. Uh, false repentance feels bad because there's, uh, there's consequences. My life is disrupted in, in some way now that I don't like. Uh, false repentance leads to a kind of self-pity and a misery and, and, in the words of Paul, death. Let's go on to verse 10, though. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So when the Lord sees the repentance in the uh, turning away from evil, God, uh, humanly speaking, changes his mind and grants mercy. Uh, Nineveh, Nineveh repented and God relented. Bottom line is this. God promises to be merciful to those who repent. Uh, that is a truism. That is a fact. In the case of Nineveh, their repentance was short-lived. And here's the sad but important reality. Repentance doesn't transfer. Uh, you can't repent for other people. Repentance isn't transferred to uh, future generations. doesn't matter if your parents believed, your grandparents believed and repented and filed the Lord. That's great. Praise the Lord. What about you? Uh, 
God has no grandchildren, as the saying goes. One of the main lessons from this verse is just the phenomenal mercy of God. So I don't want to hijack this or, or move too quickly. Uh, soak in this verse. He is a, a compassionate God. He, you, you need to hear that. This isn't just, oh, I hope so-and-so hears this. You need to hear this. He is compassionate. You need this preached to your heart, and, and I need it preached to my heart. God is a God of second chances for those who repent. First uh, John 2 says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the propitiation, the wrath absorber for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, chapter 3, just to close the loop, this is the greatest revival of all time. And it's worth highlighting just a few characteristics in retrospect here on, on this revival, some of the marks. I'll just mention them briefly. You can go back and look at them further in your own study. But I, I borrow from uh, Arno uh, Gabeline in his study on the Ninevites in revival. And he highlights uh, four different characteristics. So I'm just hijacking him here. Number one, the faithful preaching and faithful hearing of the word of God. Uh, people need the pure teaching and exposition, exposing of the Word of God. People need this. Uh, don't alter it. Don't tweak it. Don't soften it. Don't edit it. Uh, it doesn't need to be eloquent even. It just needs to be God's message. Let me give you an illustration of this that I love. I love uh, Charles Spurgeon, one of the great preachers who ever lived and he was saved by such an ineloquent message he was a boy at the time he had gone to what they called a primitive methodist chapel uh, whose pulpit was filled with a particular man who had no education he could barely read uh, barely write and he preached on the text look unto me and be saved the preacher just stuck to that verse. He didn't really have much else to say, quoting Spurgeon, telling the story. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, look and don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, many of ye are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. After about 10 minutes of such preaching, the speaker had quite exhausted what he had to say. But he noticed young Spurgeon sitting under the balcony and fixing his eyes on him. He went on, young man, you look very miserable. You'll always be miserable. Miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. It wasn't a polished sermon, but it was a sermon based on God's word, and God blessed it. Spurgeon believed it, and Spurgeon was converted. And he went on to be one of the greatest preachers of the English language. The second characteristic of revival is just belief in God. Now, hear me, I mentioned this yesterday. The people of Nineveh didn't just believe in the God of Israel. They believed the God of Israel. There is an eternal difference between believing in God and believing God. 
trusting him. The third is action. You know, talk is cheap. Show me the action. Show me the money. Uh, Faith without works is dead, James says. There's a great story of a 19th century acrobat, Jean-Francois Gravelet. He was known by the stage name of Blondin. I think he had blonde hair. Blondin gained a reputation for himself in Europe before coming to America, and he gained an even greater uh, fame for walking across Niagara Falls in a tightrope. So he was associated in everyone's mind with Niagara Falls. But he did all kinds of stunts and crossings. And uh, on one occasion, he wheeled, you know, a a, a wheelbarrow. I think he started by just walking with the big pole and then, you know, walked back. And a mass of people started watching this. And then he had a wheelbarrow. And so he took the wheelbarrow and, you know, who thinks I can do this with a wheelbarrow? I don't know. Can he do it? You know, goes across, comes back. Wow, this is amazing. Who thinks I can do it with someone in the wheelbarrow? At this point, everyone's like, yeah, you can do it, man. Go. We believe. Who wants to do it? <laughs> There's a difference between believing something is possible and, and actually having the kind of faith, the volitional kind of faith that gets in the wheelbarrow, saving faith, you could call it. If you have real saving faith, you act upon it. Uh, You act in faith. The fourth one is this, turning from specific sins. The Ninevites named uh, specific sins and turned from them. I love the story of the man who went to college. And he says, when I left for college, my mother, who'd always done my laundry, sewed a canvas duffel bag for me. Put your dirty clothes in this every night, she said at the end of the week, wash them in the laundromat. Seven days later, I took my dirty clothes to the laundromat to save a little time. I threw the duffel bag in the washer, put in some laundry powder and inserted the proper change and turned on the machine. Moments later, you know, thump, 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 echoed through the laundromat. And a pretty Baylor co-ed approached me with a grin, quote, I watched you load your washer. I think the clothes would be would get cleaner if you took them out of the bag. You know, when it comes to our sins, it's one thing to say, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. It's another thing to take each one out, acknowledge it for what it is, uh, and bring them each before the Lord. I'd also add make lifestyle changes. That's what repentance is. We, we make lifestyle, you know, if your eye caused you to sin, gouge it out. Get radical with your sin. He's not literally, it's hyperbole. Uh, get, but it means something, get radical with your sin, make lifestyle changes. That's what repentance is. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. All right. Now we come to chapter four. This is a great chapter. And the first thing we see is Jonah's anger. Look at verse one, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. Well, what's the it? What exactly displeased Jonah? Uh, Apparently, it's the fact that Nineveh repents. God relents of the disaster that he said he would do. The, The whole event actually causes Jonah to become exceedingly angry. Uh, the, the Hebrew word for this, the word for word for this would be, it was evil to Jonah with great evil. It's a play on words with the Hebrew, uh, which can mean, 
wickedness, but also misery, uh, disaster. The same evil that described the people of Nineveh is now used actually to describe Jonah. While the Lord's anger is dissipated, Jonah's anger is increased. The very, the very thing that made God change his mind and relent from wrath is the very thing that caused Jonah to have wrath. Verse 2. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is it not this? Is not this what I said when I, when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to, to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and a merciful, and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. So Jonah now reveals what he thinks has been thinking all along. And it sounds a little bit like a temper tantrum. I knew you'd do this. I knew you'd forgive them. Classic Yahweh. Always forgiving, always showing mercy, slow to anger. Well, it is classic. And he's quoting Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Jonah knew that passage. He was well acquainted with that passage. All of Israel would have known that passage. But amazingly, Jonah uses it as a tirade. He uses it as ammunition against God. How could you? Verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. I love this story. For it is better for me to die than to live. This is Jonah's being a bit of a uh, drama mama here. Either destroy them or destroy me. It's almost manipulative. And again, it's full of ironies. Jonah is saved by God's sovereign grace. Now he laments others being saved by God's sovereign grace. Uh, Jonah ran from the Lord in chapter 1 and thanked the Lord for saving him in chapter 2. Jonah thanked him for saving him in chapter 2, then praised to God to, for the Lord to take his life in chapter 4. Now, this is probably a good place to just pause and ask, whoa, why is he so angry? It seems disproportionate. What are we missing here? I think it's actually a little bit of a complicated answer because there may be a number of reasons that Jonah is angry. But on a surface level, let's just say he disagrees with God's decision. He doesn't like the Lord's sovereignty. He's basically saying, if I were in charge, this is not how I would do it. By the way, isn't this exactly what you and I do every time we're angry. In fact, anger and frustration really are oftentimes indicators that we're not trusting the Lord. So we try to control the outcome. We try to manipulate the situation. In fact, really all control is an attempt to edit God in some ways. God's mistakes, what we think are God's mistakes. And when we get exhausted, Trying to repeatedly do that, we can be led into despair, or in this case, suicide. Jonah has an issue with how God is operating. And, and more than that, he has an issue with God himself. Uh, Jonah is highly critical of the divine attributes of, of God. Uh, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the compassion of God. Uh, Jonah sees these things as regrettable, even weaknesses. 
There's another element to the plot line of Jonah's anger, and it has to do with, I think, what seems to be a national pride. Uh, He's a Hebrew. These people are Assyrians. Uh, If God spares the Assyrians, then it's possible they'll attack Israel. Uh, If Nineveh has a resurgence, that's, that's bad news for Israel. Maybe even the destruction of Israel. And that depresses Jonah. If Israel is about to be conquered by the Assyrians, then just take me home now. Maybe that's what he's saying. Uh, he, he doesn't want to be an unwilling accomplice in the destruction of Israel. But this is what Jonah doesn't seem to get. If I could quote an Old Testament scholar here, Kirk, Kevin Youngblood, he says this. Jerusalem and Nineveh illustrate the inverse relationship that existed between Israel and and the nations. Now just follow him here just for a second. On the one hand, God spared Israel for the sake of the nations because universal blessing and salvation came through his people. Remember the Abrahamic covenant. On the other hand, God spared the nations for the sake of Israel because their hostility to Israel refined her faith in God and provided a context in which Israel could learn and demonstrate mercy for enemies. In fact, I think a great way to look at this is Jonah is a little bit like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. He's not excited to see the nations repent. Uh, He's concerned with his own nation's blessing. Jonah is a nationalist. The word nationalist is almost used as a curse word today, but I don't think it's wrong to love your country. I'd say the same to a room of Kenyans. Uh, But love of country, while it can be a good thing, Love of country to the detriment and destruction of others is not a good thing. Jonah loves his country more than he loves the blessing of God on the nations who don't deserve God's mercy. And there's an imbalance here in Jonah that we would do well to learn from. Verse 4, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? The Lord's questions are always so probing. It's not like the Lord doesn't know the answer. Uh, Just follow the questions in chapter 4. It's interesting. It reminds me of the Lord asking Adam and Eve, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? What is this you've done? Uh, The Lord asks Cain after he murdered his brother, where is your brother Abel? What have you done? Here in chapter 4, do you do well to be angry? Well, we'll circle back to this, but look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. So Jonah leaves the city. We're not told why. He just heads east. The direction east is mentioned twice. It's worth highlighting in the book of Genesis. East is always the direction of rebellion. You might say in biblical terminology, heading east is never a good thing. So Jonah heads east and sets up a booth, a tent. The word is sukkah. This is important. You'll remember, if I could digress for a second here, one of Israel's feasts is the Feast of Tabernacles, what Jews today called sukkah. It commemorated the wandering years of Israel and the Lord's amazing provision of for them while they dwelt in Sukkah, tents. But here's what's fascinating about the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tents or Tabernacles. 
In Zechariah 14, 16, on your own time, look at this, but it's really interesting. The Feast of Booths in the Millennial Kingdom is celebrated by Gentiles. It's about the ingathering of the nations. So in the coming kingdom, when Jesus returns, friends, if you're in Christ, you will celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will signify, among other things, the ingathering of the nations. Who are we to be brought into these covenants and promises to Israel? So don't miss the imagery here. Here's Jonah sitting outside a pagan city in a tent, in a sukkah, a booth. In some ways, God's symbol of merciful care and concern for Israel and the nations, and yet here's this uptight, tight-fisted, grumpy prophet who's not excited about the whole plan, doesn't like it. So this tent looks backward to the provision of God for Israel in the tents, and the tent looks forward to the Messianic kingdom where Gentiles will stream to Jerusalem to worship the Messiah King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We go on. He sat under it in the shade Till he should see what would become of the city. So maybe, I, I don't know, maybe Jonah's hoping God relents of the relenting. Uh, maybe Jonah's hoping for some hellfire. It's almost like he's hoping for a sort of a Sodom and Gomorrah type outcome. Just going just gonna to sit up here on the hillside and watch the action unfold. Going to pop some popcorn, sit back and, and observe what is about to happen. Make a little tent. Hopefully the Lord comes to his senses and reconsiders his mercy. And in the meantime, Jonah's trying to cool off. I don't want to make too much of this, but the cooling off is, I think, noteworthy when you consider the Hebrew word hara means not only to be angry, but to be hot. Jonah is hot and bothered by the attributes of God. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. And made it come up over Jonah so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So here comes this little bit of an odd object lesson, this plant. The Lord appoints some kind of a a gourd, is really the word, to grow up quickly and to provide shade for Jonah. Little research told me that the average daily maximum temperature in Mesopotamia was about 110 degrees, so it's hot, no shade. The plant protects Jonah, saves him, you might say, from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Just follow what's happening here. He's not just happy, he's intoxicated with happiness. This is the first time Jonah is exceedingly happy in the story. He's worshiping the Lord. I mean, I was in need. It's hot down here. Lord God to the rescue. He made this nice plant to provide some shade for me. How how wonderful to see the Lord move like this. The Lord moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. Incredible. Look at this gourd. Yeah, you can tell a lot about someone by what they love. Nice glass of wine. The Seattle Seahawks. Cooper Cup, I'm told, is from uh, Yakima. A nice show. Really love a good show. French cuisine. All of those things might produce more reaction 
more happiness than a neighbor coming to faith in Christ. For honest, we might be more excited about some things that really don't merit the excitement that should merit. For the first time in the story, Jonah is exceedingly happy, and it is legitimately cool. This plant was an answer to prayer. It's a gift from, a, from God, a display of his mercy, but it's a plant, not a soul. He didn't experience this joy when the masses repented. His happiness is over a gourd. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the Lord. That's what Job said. Not so much Jonah. Jonah's happiness is as short-lived as the plant. The Lord sovereignly appoints a worm to destroy the plant. And the Lord is teaching a lesson here, obviously. It's an object lesson. God does to Jonah what Jonah wanted him to do to Nineveh. The Lord can deliver and the Lord can destroy. Jonah, it's as though the Lord is saying, Jonah, isn't it nice to be delivered? Wasn't that plant nice? I did that. But I can also destroy. Verse 8, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. A scorching east wind. The Septuagint just calls it a scorcher. Again, the direction is mentioned, and the irony shouldn't be lost. Jonah gets what he wants again. Well, in what way does Jonah get what he wants? If he wants strict justice with Nineveh, then he'll get strict justice. But if it's mercy he wants, then why is he upset with God showing mercy to Nineveh? So the whole parable of the plant and worm is meant to highlight and really expose Jonah's hypocrisy. Now, this whole scene might remind you of a very similar story in the Old Testament of another prophet. I don't think there's any question that the author's making a comparison and a contrast even with the prophet Elijah. Similar to Jonah, Elijah, the prophet Elijah is found in the desert under the shade of a tree, wanting to die, but that's where the similarities end. Elijah is despondent because Israel wouldn't repent. Jonah is despondent because Nineveh did repent. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. His priorities are just completely jacked up. He's more concerned with the shade than he is for the salvation and well-being of the entire county, city of Nineveh. And God's question exposes something, a self-pity, really a ridiculousness of the pouting, pettiness. You're angry about the plant? Really? 
You want grace, but you don't want grace for others? You want the grace of your shaded plant, but you don't want the grace of God extended to the nations? The whole story, I think, would have read like an indictment to Israel. And any kind of nationalistic, imperialistic attitude, it's a rebuke. This book is a rebuke to Israel. And it's a message that God cares deeply about the nations being saved. Jonah, so should you. Christian, so should you. Look at verse 11. By the way, if I could say something else about this, this was true. We see it from the Abrahamic covenant, even to Matthew 28 and the Great Commission. The, the gospel goes to every nation. We, of all people, are, are global people. Uh, and it's a good lesson. We, 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 we ought to be, I think it was John Stott who said, we should go through the world with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. We of all people. Now, other people here, they don't, they don't have the excuse. They can just focus on Yakima and, and national news. We are, we are people of the globe. We care about the nations. We have a divine mandate to care about every, eth, every ethnicity, every ethnos. And we see that all the way back in this book. Anyway, verse 10, God's compassion. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in night and perished in a night. This is a, a very Jewish argument of lesser to greater. Jonah, you love the little plant, but it's nothing compared to people, the souls. Verse 11, should, I not, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? The Lord pities Nineveh. There are over 120,000 people who don't know the right hand from their left. This was a, actually a reference to Torah observance. The Ninevites didn't have the law like the Jews. They didn't have the covenants like the Jews. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And then it says, and also much cattle. This is great. I don't even know what to say about it. Uh, you thought the ending of the Gospel of Mark was weird. Now, this has to take the cake. Maybe it's the Lord considers even the animals. Jonah can only think about his plant and his soul or his, himself. But the book essentially ends with this question, should not I pity Nineveh? That's kind of how the book ends. God's goal for creation, humans, animals is salvation. He wishes that none should perish. He's not itching for wrath. He's willing to forgive. And the final question really is the perfect question. The book doesn't really conclude with a zinger. It concludes with a question. And the resounding answer to that question is that God is a God full of mercy. Indeed, salvation is from the Lord. Jonah needed to learn that this not only applied to Israel, it applied to the nations. So that's how Jonah ends. But I think it raises some good questions for us to consider now for some application on forgiveness, uh, bitterness, mercy, God's sovereignty. I have, I think, three different areas I want to just submit to you. First one is this, trusting God's sovereignty in forgiveness. 
Uh, Ezekiel 33.11 says, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, I think that King, King James uh, calls this uh, his strange work. I think it's how it's phrased. The wrath of God is his strange work. God is slow to anger. The Bible doesn't say that God is wrath. The Bible says God is love. He's not eager to condemn. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. His delight is actually his saving work. In the Bible, we encounter a God who is long-suffering. You know, some people have this misunderstanding that the God of the Old Testament is mean and the God of the New Testament is nice. Uh, But really, that's not true. Uh, We see God's loving kindness all over the place. And we see his wrath. In fact, D.A. Carson said, well, it's, it's really not fair to say when you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you move from wrath to love. But really, you ratchet up both pictures in the New Testament. People are freaked out by, you know, pestilence in the Old Testament. They're, they're not really that concerned about hell. Uh, really, both his love and his wrath are, are accentuated and ratcheted up in the New Testament. But in Jonah, we see that God is merciful, despite the fact that Jonah is irked by that fact. Uh, we see a God who is, you could even say, unusually patient with evil. He's not quick to anger. Oftentimes, we want God to, to smite. We want God to punish the pedophile. We want God to punish the man, the rapist, the abuser. Uh, the, you know, when we see an elderly person taken advantage of, we want God to act and defend the defenseless. And he does, but he also leaves an uncomfortable amount of room for repentance and second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances and sixth chances. He's slow to anger. God has been patient with you. Meditate on that fact. There may be some who've not come to Christ because they have a warped view of God. They see him as angry and vindictive and sort of waiting like just with bated breath to just, you know, pounce with punishment. Uh, But if you want to know the heart of God, you look to the cross. Look at his great love for you, his compassion upon you, his mercy upon you. There's forgiveness for you. There's a second chance for you. There's a new beginning for you. There's redemption for you. You maybe have wasted years of, of your life in rebellion, but God's hand is outstretched for you. Praise the Lord. The next lesson is trusting God's sovereignty in suffering. Now, on a, on a personal level, if you're experiencing uh, bitterness or a spirit of unforgiveness, there might be a few things happening. Uh, you might be unaware on some level or out of touch to some degree with God's forgiveness of you. Uh, you might be skeptical on some level of God's sovereignty for allowing painful things to happen. Bitterness is a symptom, I think, of not affirming the sovereignty of God. In the case of Jonah, Jonah is upset with the Lord's lordship. He's basically saying, if if I were Yahweh, I would have done things differently. If I were God, Nineveh would be smitten, not saved. If Jonah were in charge, he would have, seriously, he would have sent a nuclear bomb to Nineveh. But like Jonah, it's possible that the consternation 
you feel, or maybe it's you could even categorize it as bitterness, is possibly because you don't trust the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God, and deep down inside you feel like you know better. That was part of the reason behind Jonah's anger. Jonah, in a sense, is past asking, how long, O Lord? He's past lament. He's moved beyond that. He wants justice, and he wants it now. You know, I think the same thing can be said about a number of sins. Jealousy is another good example. It's really a mistrust or comparison. It's a, it's a mistrust of God's goodness and the sovereignty of God. If God were, you know, you're essentially saying if God were really on his game, he would have given me that life or not allowed that or allowed that or I'd have that life or these painful things would have not happened to me. And so because there is... Uh, call it seeds of doubt or mistrust of God's plan, there may develop a bitterness or an anger. And the Lord would ask you, do you do well to be angry? Lesson number three, trusting God's sovereignty and grace. When the worm ate Jonah's plant, it caused an enormous amount of turmoil. But the real worm that was eating away at Jonah was the grace of God displayed to his enemies. Jonah was saved by God's grace from the belly of the fish, but he didn't like that grace being given to others. Charles Stanley tells a great story. He says, one of my more memorable seminary professors had a practical way of illustrating to his students the concept of grace At the end of his evangelism course, he would distribute the exam with the caution to read it all the way through before uh, trying to answer it. This caution was written on the exam as well. As we read the test, it became unquestionably clear to each of us that we had not studied nearly enough. The further we read, the worse it became. About halfway through, audible groans could be heard through the lecture hall. On the last page, however, was a note that read, You have a choice. You can either complete the exam as given or sign your name at the bottom and in so doing receive an A for this assignment. Wow, he sat there stunned. Was he serious? I mean, just sign it and get an A? Slowly the point dawned on us and one by one we turned in our tests and silently filed out of the room. When I talked with a professor about it afterward, he shared some of the reactions he had received through the years. Some students began to take the exam without reading it all the way through, and they would sweat it out for the entire two hours of class time before reaching the last page. Others read the first two pages, became angry, turned the test in blank, and stormed out the room without signing it. They never realized what was available, and as a result, they totally lost out. One fellow, however, read the entire test, including the note at the end, but decided to take the exam anyway. He didn't want any gifts. He wanted to earn his grade, and he did. He made a C plus when he could have easily had an A. And the story illustrates really many people's reaction to God's solution to sin. And in this case, with Jonah, some people look at God's standard, the moral and and ethical perfection, and they throw their hands up in surrender. Why even try? They tell themselves, I could never live up to all that stuff. Others are like the student who read the test through and and, uh, are aware of the professor's offer, but take the test anyway. 
unwilling to simply receive God's gift of forgiveness. They set about to rack up enough points with God to earn it. But God's grace, Stanley writes, truly is like a professor's offer. It may seem unbelievable, but if we accept it, then like the stunned students who accepted the professor's offer, we too will discover that, yes, God's grace truly is free, and all we have to do is accept it. This is like the story, I think, of the vineyard workers in Matthew 20. Some workers work all day and get what they're promised. Others work for an hour and get a full day's pay which ignites a panic attack in the workers who worked all day. But the owner of the vineyard asks, do you begrudge my generosity? It's not wrong for me to give them grace. It's not wrong for me to give them a a full day's pay when they only deserve an hour's pay. But Jonah did begrudge the Lord's generosity to Nineveh. He did begrudge the fact that God is slow to anger and full of mercy. And honestly, honestly, I think it's easy for us, easier than we may think, to fall into the same trap as Jonah. It's easier, easy for us to long for justice when what we really need is grace. I'll close with a story of D.A. Carson tells. I might have told it last time I was here, but I love it. He says, So you wake up and it's a miserable day. Clouds, rain, the alarm clock didn't work, so you're late. Your spouse is grumpy. You can't find clean socks. You dash into the car after a sip of orange juice. You didn't get a decent breakfast. You know your boss is going to growl at you. You put the key in the ignition. You knew you should have gotten the battery fixed. But eventually you get to work late, you get chewed out, and you notice, you get a notice that you might get sacked. These are hard economic times. You have a couple different difficult decisions. Some, someone says something, you nearly bite their head off. It's a miserable day. And you get home and there's a note, find day-old lasagna in the fridge if you want it. You see the kids a little later, they're all in bad moods. And that night you get down and pray, and it sounds like this. Dear Heavenly Father, it's been a rotten day. Haven't reacted very well, but it has been a rotten day. I'll try to do better tomorrow. Bless everybody in Jesus' name. Amen. And then there are other days when you wake up, you've had a good night's sleep. Birds are singing. The air is fresh and clean. You know this one is going to be a winner. You get up, see all your clothes are laid out for you and the smell of bacon coming from the kitchen. You have a good breakfast. You get to the car, boom, starts right up. You get to work early, your boss notices, commends you and says, you know, I'm actually thinking of expanding the division. After all, things are looking better than we thought. Are you up possibly, potentially for a managerial position? You smile at everyone. You share the gospel with someone at the drinking fountain. You get home to a great meal. Kids are angels. House is clean. You have family worship with your family. You go to bed, and that night your prayer sounds like this. Eternal and majestic Heavenly Father, in the fullness of your grace, I bow before you at the end of this day. 
thank you for the magnificence of your faithful blessing upon me, your humble servant. Pretty soon you're in various prayers of worship and adoration. You find yourself praying for people at church and people at work and the gospel going out worldwide and missionaries and their cousins twice removed. And pretty soon you go to bed justified. And you've been an utter pagan both times because you have the amazing audacity to enter the presence of a holy God on the basis of what kind of day you've had. Could anything be more demeaning of grace, more destructive of the doctrine of justification? Jonah faced a dilemma that maybe you can relate to. How can God be just and also merciful at the same time? Age-old question. Job asks it as well. But it's answered in the cross of Christ, as you know. He punishes sin as we would want him to, and he does it through his own son, through the cross of Calvary. But he also simultaneously does it as an act of mercy for sinners. He is just and the justifier. And justice is upheld, and his perfect mercy and grace and forgiveness are offered freely to whoever wants it. Praise the Lord. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy. Uh, We confess, all of us, that at times we begrudge your attributes. That at times, Lord, we, we look and we act and we think a little bit more like Jonah than we care to admit. But at the end of the day, we are glad that you are a God slow to anger, merciful, gracious, abounding in steadfast love and kindness. And Lord, help us to approach you not on the basis of what kind of day we've had or how we feel. Help us to think about and approach you because of the righteousness of Christ alone, because of grace freely given to undeserving sinners, still undeserving sinners. Lord, I pray that you would truly soak us in your grace. Help us to know it well. Help us to believe it. Help us to be just the fragrance of your grace to people all around us. We know this is your heart. This is your desire for nations and neighborhoods and neighbors uh, to know your grace and your love. Help us to reflect that. And Lord, if there's anyone here listening to this who doesn't quite get it, Lord, by some miracle, would you open up their eyes to your great love for them? May they know it not just in their minds, but in their hearts. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.